uh, we're in the book of Revelation, and one of the things I told you was I don't, there are not books that I would recommend uh, for you to read, but if somebody would transcribe the classes, I would print those out and give you those, and you could read mine. So that sounds egotistical, doesn't it? Uh, that's not exactly what I meant to say. What I meant was, uh, for this class, there's not a lot of books that I would recommend because I think there's a weakness in most of the books uh, that are written from the book of Revelation. Uh, a lot of the books, I think, are in error, as I, I hope you understand already. But the ones that I think that are good have two what I consider significant flaws. One of them is uh, most of the books are written from a really scholarly perspective, uh, and that kind of depth is really hard for uh, what, I can, what I would call the average person to study with. Uh, we read it and we drown in the depth of it because we don't have quite the foundation that the author had in writing the book. So that doesn't help us in a class. The other books uh, that I have, a, I have a struggle with for this class are so shallow that they just kind of skim across the surface and so we don't get any depth. And so a balance is what we need. But just in case, if you think that I wouldn't recommend any, there, there is a book I would recommend. If you want one, it's very shallow, so it's not going to be a great deal of assistance to you in our class. But there's a book called The Lamb and His Enemies. It was written by Rubel Shelley. I'm not a fan, obviously, of most of the stuff that he wrote, but this was written back in the early 70s. Uh, I have had a, a few copies of it. It's a good book on the book of Revelation. It will help you in an in a overall understanding of the message. And so if you want to find that and obtain that, that would be helpful. So uh, I apologize if that sounded egotistical Wednesday night because I did not intend for it to be that way. Okay. Now, we're in Revelation, and you know that I really like to review in every class, but especially in this book, because I think if we lose our line of thought, if we lose our context here, then we lose our message, and we start to get sidetracked with things that don't match up to what God was saying. So I want to review a little bit on how to uh, approach the book, and then we'll review what we started in chapter 1, and then we'll, we'll continue on. But I told you uh, right in the beginning, in chapter 1 and verse 1, in fact, verses 1 and 2 would tell us very significantly how this book shows up, and that is it's being written in signs. It was sent and signified, right? So it's written in signs. We call it apocalyptic literature. Uh, and in fact, the word revelation, the, the word that is translated revelation, is the word apocalypsis. And all it means is a revealing. It's not a hiding. A lot of people look at this book and they, they think, well, this is a hidden message. It's not. It means revealing. Now, it was hidden from those who were the enemies of Christianity, primarily the Roman Empire. And so, so to, in that regard, I guess it is hidden, but it's a revealing of God's message and his prophecy about what these people were about to face. Uh, the book was written, uh, recorded by John on the island of Patmos when he is there exiled for his faith by the Roman Empire. Uh, it was written from the time frame of about AD 96, uh, based on the evidence that I have found. Uh, you got to be careful in how you interpret it. Remember I told you that significant tools to help you interpret it would be the attitude of things like recognizing that it was written to the end of the first century Christians and following. It wasn't written for 21st century or you know further Christians, although there's certainly things in it that are still yet to be fulfilled when we start reading about the judgment day at the end of it. But, but the primary message of the book is that God wins, and what they were dealing with in the first century and, and continuing on had to do with the persecution from the Roman Empire. So God was going to defeat the Roman Empire and, and continue to progress with that promise that he made uh, when Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew chapter 16 that he would build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Rome would not defeat the church. So you've got to interpret these things through their eyes, first century eyes. 
You also have to recognize that signs don't represent themselves. So if you read something in the book like we'll read even this morning, the first thing we'll get into is we'll read about stars and lampstands. And, and you may not know what those stars represent and you may not know what those lampstands represent. But what you do know is they're not stars and they're not lampstands. They're signs that represent something else. And we talked about how to interpret those signs and there are useful tools to that such as you look in the text because there are times in the book of Revelation where uh, the message actually interprets itself and that will be the case as far as the stars are concerned and the lampstands are concerned and, and sometimes in other places in the text that happens. There are other ways to help you when that's not available. You look through the prophets, especially the Old Testament prophets. I told you that a significant amount of the verses in the book of Revelation have a reference back to something else found somewhere else in the Bible, especially the prophets. And so you can look at places like Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18 where we are taught uh, that, that white represents a purity, right? Your sins will be as white, though they are scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Purity. And so when you get to the book of Revelation and you see things that are, that are white, you start, to, you start to get the impression of what he's talking about is something that is pure, right? Uh, we had the papers. By the way, do we have any of those papers left, Greg? I don't even know what happened to them the other day. Okay, uh, would you take care of that, please? I don't know how many need them still, but we handed out the introduction paper on Wednesday night. If you were not here to get one and you want one, Greg will be able to hand those out to you. Uh, they have numbers. There are a lot of numbers in the book of Revelation. Again, you go back through the prophets and you can learn what these numbers represented and better helps you understand what's happening in Revelation. We also talked about the fact that we want to avoid the pitfall of trying to find a, a meaning in every single thing. And the illustration that we used was the parables. So you hear Jesus telling parables during his earthly ministry such as the kingdom of heaven is like a man, a sower that goes out into the field to sow and he casts his seed. And you start, if you get bogged down thinking that every single detail in that parable has to mean something, you miss the point that he was making, which is that the sower goes out and sows the seed, but it's the responsibility of the soil to, uh, as to how that responds. He's got some right here. Uh, as to how that they, they respond to that. So you miss the message if you get so bogged down in the details of the signs that you just think something everything has to mean something. Okay, so as we got into chapter 1 uh, on Wednesday night, again, one of the first things that we found was this is a message that is coming from Jesus through John. Uh, he is exiled on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, it is being signified, again, meaning that it was written in signs. Uh, if you continue on, he talks about those who get it and understand it. Verse 3, they get it, they understand it, they're going to be blessed. And the point that he makes there is the reason that they're going to be blessed is, what was the last of verse 3? The time is near. And we talked about on Wednesday night the significant difference between that message from God through John saying the time is near versus the same message, well, a similar message, I guess I should say, that was sent through Daniel. And you remember Daniel? Daniel was taken captive in 605 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar as, as the Babylonians attacked the southern kingdom of Judah. And Daniel was a part of that first group. And so Daniel was used by God to record the events that happened in the first six chapters of Daniel. The events that happened throughout the captivity of Israel. But following chapter 6, you get into this apocalyptic message that he is delivering. And as he delivers it, what he's talking about, we figure out as we study through it, is the coming of Messiah. But that's not going to happen for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after the time of that captivity. And so as God gives him that prophecy, what he tells Daniel is, seal it up. 
seal up this vision. Then he says, for the time is not near. Well, the book of Revelation says the time is near. So what would that, what impact would that message have if you're in the first century and you receive this, this message from, from God through John that says, oh, the time is near, and the, the message is actually something that's going to happen in the year 2050. Is that near to them? So you have to keep it there. John says this is something that's going to happen very soon. And he identifies that this is a message specifically to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Uh, we talked about the discussion people get into about were there really only seven churches? Were there more? What? It doesn't matter. <laughs> what did the number seven mean? It was something that was complete, but there was, what was the other word you used there, Karen? It was the number of deity. And so as he talks about these churches and he uses the number of deity, just like he did with the seven spirits of God, he talked, that's the Holy Spirit who is deity. So as he talks about these seven churches, the church is the body of Christ, right? And so we're the body of deity. Now that doesn't make us gods, I don't want you to get that impression. But the body itself is the body of Christ, isn't it? So he's writing to all of the church, no matter how many there are in existence, and you really miss it if you just get tied down in the number. Uh, it talks about judgment that's coming on Rome. They will, those who have pierced him will see him. The earth will see him and mourn. Mourn. Let me ask you a question. We read about the second coming. Uh, I want to show you the distinction before we move on. Because people read any judgment and they automatically assume second coming. But there are numerous judgments identified throughout the Bible that are a coming of God or a coming of Jesus in, in judgment that are not the end of uh, the final judgment that is the second coming of Christ. What's significant here is as you, as you look at this passage and you see him talk about all eyes seeing him and those who pierced him see him and the tribes of the earth mourning because of him. When you read about the second coming and the way that it's presented in the New Testament, especially at the pen of Paul, you read about quickness, Right? You read about a thief very quickly. You read about a trumpet blast. You read about the graves being opened and all being all the elements melting away. You're not reading about a time in which you can, for example, mourn. Uh, very similarly, when you read in Matthew chapter 24 about the judgment that was going to come on Jerusalem, which did come in AD 70, at the hands of Titus and the, the Romans as they attacked and destroyed the city and the temple, one of the things God said about it was, listen, pray that you can get out of the city. That it's not in the winter. Flee to the mountains. Well, if that's the second coming, what good does it do you to flee to the mountains? So you see there's a, a distinction in the type of judgment. And very quickly as we get into chapter 2, as we finish chapter 1 and start in chapter 2, you start reading about these, these seven churches and the, the letters specifically to each one. And you read about what was going on there. And each time you read about judgment, well not each time, but... In most of them, you read about judgment. But each one of the judgments that you read about is a conditional judgment, not a final judgment. So repent or else I will come and judge you. So what he's reading about here, what he's telling about us here is a judgment, but not the end of all things judgment. Okay, verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom... And patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a, a, a loud voice as of a trumpet. It's not the end of the sentence, but I wanted to get part of that as we deal with what he says here. John gives us a couple things that I don't think are 
we, we want to just harp on and continue on with the context, but we do want to hang on to just a little bit. And that is, he says he's, he's on the island of Patmos. Uh, he talks about being in the Spirit, or what he's recording here is inspired. Uh, but he also talks about who he is. He is their companion in tribulation and the kingdom. Two things that are important there. One of them has to do with the way many people interpret the book of Revelation today. And they get this idea that what's going to happen, and we'll talk about this many times as we go through this book. Uh, but they get this idea that what's going to happen is one of these days that Jesus is going is to come back and he's going to take away his people. And when he takes away his people, he's going to leave everybody else here for seven years for this period of tribulation. And, you know, this, uh, then the battle of Armageddon will occur and then there'll be a thousand year reign. Okay, John is their brother in tribulation. How can he be their brother in tribulation if he's not already in it? He is a prisoner for his faith. Which means tribulation, the way that it's used in the scriptures, has to do with what you're facing, not some future event that's going to occur. They were already dealing with it. He's dealing with it. The second thing he mentions there, he is also their brother in the kingdom. Which tells you something. What's it tell you? The kingdom's there. He can't be in something that doesn't exist, can he? I mean, you're in this building today, aren't you? So therefore, you know that it exists, right? It's not imaginary, is it? So for John to be in the kingdom means the kingdom had already exist. So if you approach any book of the Bible or any passage of the Bible or the book of Revelation itself from the perspective of the kingdom is going to be coming in the future, you've already missed the point. So he starts out with the fact that he is already in the kingdom and he's already suffering just like they are. All right, now let's pick it up in the beginning of that sentence and keep going. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. I stop, that's not the end of the description, but so John is there on Patmos, he is receives this inspired message from God, and he hears behind him this this loud voice. And he turns around to see what? To see the voice. Can you see a voice? No, it's like, uh, you know, when you, see, when you see Peter and he's walking on water because Jesus has walked on water. And Peter says, I want to I walk to you. And so Jesus calls him out of the boat and he gets out of the boat and he walks out there. And then the text tells us he gets afraid. Why does he, why does he become afraid? What does he see? Well, it is because he took his eyes off Jesus. But what did he see? The text tells us what he saw. He saw the wind and the waves. How do you see the wind? You see the results of it. Okay, so he's, as he turns around, what he's turning around is not to see a voice. What he's turning around is to see what caused the voice, right? He hears the results. He turns around to see what causes this voice. And what he sees behind him is royalty. He sees royalty. And in fact, by the way, 
the voice said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. We talked about that on Wednesday night a little bit. What does that mean? That's the beginning end, because that's the first letter in the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet, and that corresponds to or signifies who John's already told us Jesus was when he wrote the book of John, right? In chapter 1, when he said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, same as in the beginning with God, you go down verse 14, he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, so he was there all along, but he's been here, and he's coming back. And John was told to record it that way. Record what you've seen, what's happening, and what's going to come. That'll come up again in just a minute. But the point he's making is, you know, if you look around, and again, uh, I don't know how many times I'm going to say this, but I want to highlight it from Wednesday night. When you look around in our world today, and you see what's happening, and you see, you know, the direction that everything's going, isn't it difficult to look around and not think, you know what, the devil's winning, I mean, does it look around, when you look around in our world today, do you see Christianity prevailing over evil in our world? If you read the article this morning, that probably got me in trouble, but it talks about being surrounded by all this evil in our world. Does it feel like when you go through your life that you're surrounded by not spirituality, not, I'm not talking about good people, I'm talking about Christianity, and that's different. Does it feel like that's what you're surrounded with, or maybe the opposite? And so... You, you can understand how these, these Christians who were living near the end of the first century who are so oppressed by Rome and going through... I mean, John's the last living apostle, and where is he? He's in a prison island, isn't he? And so if you're a Christian who is dependent upon him and, and you're, you're needing him to help you or mentor or whatever you, word you want to use, and all of a sudden he's being taken away, and so if John can be taken away, what about me? So it starts to look like this idea that, you know... Evil's winning. So what Jesus says right in the beginning as John looks at him and sees that he is this regal king, what he's saying is, I have always been here. I have always been on the throne. I have always been the king of kings. May look like Domitian's ruling. He's not. He's just there temporary. When he's gone, I'll still be here. When the next one's gone, I'll still be here. When Rome's gone, I'll still be here. Keep going. Let's pick up 13 again. Uh, uh, wait, actually 12 again. Uh, I, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the, to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool. That talks about purity again. I, I want to highlight that. It was white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Now, that, let's start with the simple. Hebrews 4.12 tells us about a sword, doesn't it? And what is the sword? That's a two-edged sword. It's the Word of God. So these symbols that we're being told about the way John sees Jesus, and by the way, he's not told you know, right, he's got this, and he's got this, and he's got this. This is what he sees. He's recording what he sees. And what he sees is this very regal king who has the, the clothing of not just, not earthly kings, but greater than that. And his feet are like brass, pure brass. I mean, everything about him is about purity and power. He has penetrating eyes, which represents a way of, of seeing things, right? You remember when your parents could look at you and you knew they knew just by the way they were looking at you? 
Yeah, that's, that's this description here. He knows. And on top of that, we're told who he is by that two-edged sword. Again, John's the one who recorded it. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word of God, according to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, is the sword of the Spirit, isn't it? And it's a two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, right? So Jesus is, is the one that John sees. We're very clearly being shown the fact that Jesus is the one that John sees. And there's a couple things that are happening around him that are, that are separate from who he is that are going to be important, not only as we finish chapter 1, but as we get started in chapter 2 and 3. And that is, he has around him lampstands. Now at this point, remember I told you when we start the book of Revelation, you want to forget everything you've, you've, you've ever studied. And the reason is, is because you want to open mind. And if you knew the truth before, you're going to come back to it. And if you didn't know it before, you need to find the truth anyway, right? Okay, so when we talk about him running around these lampstands, you may already know because you may have already studied past it. But if you're just starting from scratch and you read this and you look at it and you say, here's he's got these lampstands around it, what could that possibly mean? Oh, and then he's got these stars in his, well, it's his right hand. He's got these stars in his right hand. What could that possibly mean? And so right at the beginning you have these this vision that John sees of, of symbols and you start, to, you start to try to figure out what they mean and you figure out where you go with it in the future. And Well, how about let's just let him interpret it. Let's just keep going. 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he, he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and I have the keys of Hades and death. So, again, we have this idea of eternality, first and last, and we have a connection, again, to explain to him what this means about the sword and everything and the fact that he was alive, but then he died, but then he resurrected. Do you realize when he came to the earth, born of a virgin, uh, that as a human, that that was the day, just like the rest of us, that he began a journey toward death, right? You know, once you come in, isn't it, doesn't the scriptures teach us it's appointed unto man wants to die? Now, a significant difference between his life and our life is we have sinned, and the consequence of sin is death, but our whole world is under the consequence of sin. A child can die without having sinned, right? Okay, so as soon as Jesus was born, he was on this journey. Though he is alive, he, <coughs> he was on this journey to death. And he did die. But what did the resurrection do? Conquered it. Conquered it. So once he conquers death, he's alive forevermore. And as a consequence of conquering death, he has a set of keys now, which signifies authority, right? I've got a set of keys in my pocket. They go to my car. That means that it's my car, right? I have the authority with these keys to turn that car on and use it, right? You don't have these keys, so you can't do that unless I give them to you. And when I give them to you, I'm giving you the authority to do something with that, right? So he has these keys. And the keys that he has open what? Yeah, what he's dealing with is the temporary realm. The temporary realm. Remember in Luke chapter 16, there's an account that Jesus tells uh, about these two people that are living on the earth. One of them is very wealthy. Uh, I mean, he's just living a great, great life as far as the world standards are concerned. And then there's this other guy, which we know his name. Don't ever know that rich guy's name, but we know 
the other man's name. His name's Lazarus, and he's poor. He's a beggar, and he's the best part of his day is when the dogs lick his sores as he sits outside this rich man's gate or whatever. They both die. They both die, and the text really doesn't tell us a whole lot about Lazarus except for that he is taken into the bosom of Abraham. But it tells us a little more about that rich man. The rich man lifts up his eyes in a place called torment. Yeah, a place called torment. And it's miserable. And he can't cross over. We're told about this gulf and he can't cross over. And he thinks about his loved ones back at home who are following the same path he is on. He said, somebody's got to go tell them. Somebody's got to help them. He wants a drop of water. He's told, you know what? Nothing's going to help you where you are now. Where he was is this temporary place where the Hebrews writer again tells us it's appointed unto man once to die, but after that the judgment. In other words, you go to a place in this temporary realm at death that you already have been judged. You know where that rich man is in judgment already, don't you? You know where Lazarus is already in judgment. But at the end of time, the one who has the authority who shows up with the keys doesn't just end this earth, but also that temporary existence. Then is the judgment day that takes us into eternity. Keep reading. I hadn't forgot about the lampstand and stars yet, by the way. Just hang on to them. Verse 19. Uh, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So he said, I want you to write some things down. Everything that's already, you've already seen, you've got to write this down. I want you to write down what's happening right now, but I've got some more things that I want you to see and write down again. Now, in chapter 2 and 3, he's going to tell him things to write. But once you start in chapter 4, he's going to start seeing things again. And once he starts seeing things, God's telling him to write it down. Okay, what do you write? Here you go. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. Now, again, we get, we get tied up. And maybe the weakness here is that we're reading uh, that this was written in, in Koine Greek, and we're reading it in an English translation, I suppose. That makes it a little bit challenging. I, I hate to say that because I don't want to give you the impression you've got to know the original language to get it right. I don't think it matters what I'm about to tell you, but I do want to tell you. The angels that he's talking about here in the stars are not angels. They're people. Uh, what does the word angel mean? Messenger. And the word that is translated angel here simply means messenger. And it's used numerous times throughout the scripture for the purpose of telling us about somebody who's alive who is a messenger of God. Uh, For example, the priesthood is called the messenger and the very same word is used. And you have... uh, You have Haggai in chapter 1, verse 13, calling himself a messenger, and it's the same word. Haggai wasn't an angel. He was a prophet. He was a messenger of God. John the Baptist, a messenger. Same word. And so what we're reading about here is not some celestial being, but a messenger. And most likely, the messengers that we're reading about is... The people who are going to deliver this letter. See, they didn't have the internet. Did you know that? Did you know in the, when this letter was written, they didn't have the internet? So he couldn't like, you know, we have this email list we use here. And if we've got an announcement, somebody requesting prayers or in the hospital or whatever, I can, I can get on my little laptop and I can type up a message. And I can send that with one click in just seconds to everybody whose email address I have. And you know what's going on if you check them, right? Isn't that amazing? Okay. 
What if we didn't have that? Well, we'd use the telephone. If I couldn't call all of you at once, that'd take a little longer, wouldn't it? Okay, what if we didn't have that? Yeah. It's going to take some time, isn't it? Okay, go back to the first century and you recognize when these letters were written, it's not that they could even send it by the Pony Express, right? I mean, they've got to take messengers and they've got to send messengers to places with letters. Well, we're dealing with a time frame in which John, who's writing this letter from an island, by the way, is there because of the persecution of the Roman Empire over his Christianity. And he's about to send seven people out, at least seven that we know about, Seven people out with letters delivered to seven churches of Asia Minor. Scary mission. So how can they know that they can do it? Somebody's got them in their hand. Who is that? Do you know when God has made a promise and when God has a plan, do you know that it always works? You... uh, I, I kind of make this personal. You know, uh, doing this, teaching classes and preaching is incredibly difficult for me. Uh, I have always had anxiety issues. I have always had fear issues. This is the only time I'm afraid. Well, unless you throw a snake at me. I'm going to be afraid of a snake. This is when I'm afraid. Uh, I, this, this, are you cold? Anybody here cold? There's a few people that are cold. I'm never cold in here. You could put it 60 degrees. I'm not cold. Uh, I sweat and I get nervous. I get a little nauseous. It's just terrible. You know why? It's a serious thing to do, isn't it? So if you have all of those fears, how do you keep doing it? I have a secret. I have a secret. That secret is I know God's upholding me if I'm going to do what he asked me to do. So before I start, every time before I start, I, I have a quote. I quote through some scriptures and I pray. Use me. Don't let me get in your way. Don't let my weaknesses hinder you. Use me. And then I get up and with my weaknesses, let him use me. Okay, that's what John's talking about here. What he sees is these people that are going to deliver these messages to this church, that's not going to be a simple, easy task for them. So how do you know you can do it? Because it's part of God's plan, and he's the one upholding them. Okay, well, what about those, those lampstands? What do you say about them? What are they? They are the churches. So right here in this vision, and, and he's fixing to highlight that as we start into chapter 2, why he's telling them. Right here in this vision, what John has seen is there are these churches that are represented by lampstands, and there are these stars that represent the messages of, of God or the messengers of Jesus, and he's holding them up, and he's somewhere around the lampstands, right? So we're reading about presence. Okay, what does that mean? Well, chapter 2. He's going to start here. Chapter 2 and 3 specifically identifies each one of these places that are written to. And right off the bat, he's going to use these lampstands and stars. Verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now we stop. Now Again, we don't know his message to Ephesus yet, but we know about Ephesus, don't we? I mean, somebody else wrote to the church at Ephesus, didn't they? The Apostle Paul, by inspiration. And when we read from him, they're praised. They're praised for their strength. They're praised for their courage. They are praised for their love. They are guided in the path that they need to go. And so as 
As Jesus begins dictating this letter to John for him to record to the church at Ephesus, that's what we know about their history. And so what he says is, I want you to know that this letter's not coming from John, though. Who's it coming from? The one who holds the stars in his hand, and here's the really important part that's new. What about the lampstands? What? He's walking in them. Remember when Stephen was being stoned and Saul of Tarsus was there with the coats and everything and those people were stoning him because of that sermon that he delivered about God's plan all along and about Jesus being the Messiah, the fulfillment of God's plan. And as they were stoning him, Stephen looked. He looked. And what he saw was the throne of God, didn't he? And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, didn't he? What did that signify there? He cared He knew what was happening, he recognized what was going on, and he cared. So when you read about him walking in the midst of the seven lampstands, which, by the way, we've already been told are representative of these churches, right? The church, when you represent the church by the lampstand and Jesus is walking in the midst of the the lampstand, what you're getting is presence. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is one of those passages that... Uh, really signifies who we are as the, as the body of Christ. And we, we are to build, right? We have a job. We are to build. We're sowing seed and we're building. But the problem is you've got to build with the right material, right? You could get all kinds of numbers with straw and what we would call today entertainment, right? You could throw up a bunch of entertainment, put in a big rock band up here or something, and more people would come, and they would fill the pews, and we'd all be excited, and, you know, the hair would stand up on the back of your neck, and we'd be so spiritual, and, and 1 Corinthians 3 says, well, God wouldn't be here. So you build the church that way, and you get a whole bunch of numbers, and you get a whole bunch of people who are still lost. On the other hand, if you build with the right material, if you build with truth, Well, it doesn't matter what the numbers are on that board over there. What matters is if you build with truth, he's here. In fact, what he says in in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16 is that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. When we as the church are building with his material, we are his temple. Isn't the temple where God dwelt? Wasn't that the point of building the temple? When they were at Sinai and God gave them all the laws and he talked about the tabernacle at that time because they're still journeying through the wilderness. But finally it is Solomon, the son of, son of David, who builds that temple in Jerusalem. Wasn't it about God's presence? That's where the people went to meet God. And so you had a holy place and a most holy place. And the priesthood went in there all the time in the holy place and, you know, changed the showbread and made sure the lampstands were burning and all that stuff. But, but he couldn't go in that other place, could he? Not until one day a year, right? He's the only, only the high priest could go in there one day a year because that's where God was. So the temple represented God's presence. So all of a sudden we have in Revelation chapter 2, this letter written to the, the church at Ephesus, we have this reference back to this one who's holding the stars and walking in the lamp, or, and, and around the lampstands. And the very first reference is, he's among you. Okay, that can mean a lot of things. I like the positive side of it. I like the fact that that means that I don't have to be anxious. I don't have to worry. I don't have to do it on my own. But the other side of that coin is that also means he knows, doesn't he? He knows when I try to do it on my own. He knows when I fail him. He knows when I'm building with the wrong material. So he's there. Well, let's keep reading. I sure expected to get a lot further today. Uh, walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. So see, that's the part I was just talking about. The fact that he's among them means he knows them, right? I know your works. Your labor, that's harder than work. Your patience, 
That means something that takes some time, doesn't it? And that you cannot bear those who are evil. And that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So right off the bat, he praises them. They're working. And not only are they working, but they're working on some hard stuff, right? I mean, does growth just magically happen? Is it, is it an effort for you to get up and get here to worship? It's an effort, isn't it? You've got to get up and you've got to get cleaned up and you've got to drive. And I'm not saying it's hard, but you've got to do it, right? So that's an effort. But there are other things in your life that are more difficult effort, right? Like changing who I am into more of what he wants me to be. Disciplining myself, right? Paul would call it buffeting myself. So that's a little... Well, so he is, as he identifies this church, he says, Look, I know you're, you're working. I know that it is labor, that it's difficult what you're doing. On top of that, I know that you've been at it for a long time. You've had to work hard for a long time. It's not like you just, you know, worked hard for a day and all of a sudden everything was great. You're not reaching retirement yet. You're still working. I get that about you. I understand all of these good things. I know that there are people around who, who and we've read about this several times as we went through, especially Second Peter, right, and Third John, about these false teachers that were out there. And First and Second John talked about these antichrists, these people who were opposed to and denied that Jesus came in the flesh. So now Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, not only are you working and you're laboring and you have patience and perseverance, you're enduring, but you've got these people around you who are claiming something that's not true and you haven't just accepted it. Weren't they taught to test the spirits to see whether they are of God? Okay, well, here's a problem. If you don't have the Bible recorded for you, how do you test them? If somebody could just show up and say, hey, I'm an apostle, how are you going to test that? Well, that would be true of a prophet, but there's something more. Uh, let me ask you this. Was it true in the first century that when people obeyed the gospel that the apostles would lay hands on them and they would get some kind of miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit? Was that true? Yeah. And in fact, First Corinthians chapter 12 identifies a bunch of those things. And so some of them would get the gift of prophecy and some the gift of tongues and some the gift of interpretation of tongues and some the gift of inspiration and some the gift of healing. There's all these gifts that were put in place for the for the fulfillment of and the completion of the church, right? Okay, so if I'm somebody around the church at Ephesus and I show up and I say, hey, I'm an apostle, look at this, I can do miraculous things and I healed somebody. What are they going to think? You're an apostle, right? So how are you going to prove me wrong? I'm going to give you another account if you can't figure it out. Remember there was this man named Simon. He was a sorcerer. Made a whole lot of money fooling people, right? The apostles showed up because people obeyed the gospel, including Simon, by the way. And they laid hands on them, and they gave them miraculous ability. So all these people that became Christians had miraculous ability. Well, the problem with that for Simon was he was no different than anybody else anymore. So he started looking at it, and he came up with a plan. And he went to the apostles, and he said, Hey, I've got a whole lot of money, and I'd like to give you some of it for this. What was he trying to buy? He already had a gift. What was he trying to buy? The ability to pass them on. See, only the apostles could do that. So you got somebody who shows up. Evidently, this has happened around Ephesus. You got people that are showing up and they're saying, Look, God sent me. I'm an apostle of Jesus, which, by the way, is what apostle means one sent. 
So God sent me, and look at this, I can do a miracle to prove it to you. And they say, well, I'm not sure you're an apostle. How am I going to test the Spirit? Pass it on. Yeah, we're, we're converting people. Pass it on. And if he can do it, he's an apostle. If not, he's a liar, isn't he? Even if he had a miraculous gift... He's lied. That's actually what happened to Simon. He got miraculous ability and then fell away. So the gift didn't keep you faithful, did it? So they tested him. You see all this praise that God is doing for the church in Ephesus? You're going to have to hang on to that. And Wednesday night we'll read the criticism because we're out of time. So let's close with a prayer. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to be here here this morning. We're thankful, Father, for your word. We're thankful, Father, for this book that reminds us that, that you win. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to walk with you, that you support us, that you strengthen us, and that you use us. Help us always to shine your light into this community. Forgive us where we fail you. In Christ's name, amen.